Okay, so after what was a much-needed break for both of us last week, I was growing weary of preaching, and I'm sure you were growing weary of hearing me preach. We're back in the Ten Commandments. And besides, we heard a, a very necessary reminder last week that the knowledge of good and evil um, is not our possession, uh, something within our capacity to determine, but it comes from God. It's not our possession, or it's not our uh, position, rather, to assert and exert ourselves in the matter, but to humbly and patiently listen, right? To, to hear what God says is good and to receive it. So, a very necessary reminder, especially amid all the confusion and idolatry of our day. Now, that brings us to the subject uh, this morning, the third commandment, uh, to not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And so I attempted last time to explain the what of the commandment, what it prohibits, taking the name in vain, and what it exhorts us to, to hallow the name. And that, either hallowing or else profaning the name, isn't something that we merely do with our words, right? It's not merely about how we speak about God's name, although it is that. But more properly, it's about the whole of our lives. The Lord's name is not something we take occasionally. It's not something we take upon our lips every now and then, but it is rather our permanent possession, a gift that God has given to us as his children, as his bride, and as his temple. We carry the name with us wherever we go. So as the apostle tells us, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, that's what we talked about last week, the what of the commandment. But this morning, it lies before us to address the how of the commandment, at least in part. Now, the simple reason being is that the how part of the commandment, actually carrying it out, it's my opinion, is particularly challenging in our day and age. Now, each age, be it this one or the previous one or the next one, comes with unique dangers that the church must grapple with and overcome. Now, ours, as I've said, comes to the surface when we consider the how of the third commandment, what it means to hallow God's name, to treat it with this ultimate objective worth, how how that brings out, I think, a, a particular challenge to our time. So we're going to ask, how, how might we hallow the name and not take it in vain in this moment, in this particular cultural situation, in this particular place? So that's the question that the commandment confronts us with, which we will in time give an answer to. So our message this morning is going to proceed in three parts. First is kind of laying out that problem talking about it to the best of our detail, kind of explaining it so we're all on the same page, and then proposing a recovery, what we can do to kind of work past the situation we're in, and then lastly, kind of address that how part of the question straight on. So what we'll do then is talk about this thing called nihilism. I'm sure you've heard of it. 
and then we're going to put up a Christian defense to it, and then try to put a practical emphasis on that defense. So first up is the problem. And we can begin to grapple with the problem by putting a name to it. As we've said, nihilism. It's a philosophical system, one that has come to characterize our age, that essentially teaches that there is no inherent truth or beauty or goodness in the universe except that which we impose upon it. So there is nothing objective except that which we impose upon it. Um, So, again, more simply, there is nothing objective in the nihilistic scheme. There's no actual meaning or explicit purpose to things, but again, only that which we can conjure in our minds. One philosopher, uh, he defined it this way. Nihilism literally has only one truth to declare, namely, that nothingness prevails and the world is meaningless. Nothingness prevails and the world is meaningless. So, in the end, nothingness triumphs over goodness and truth and beauty. We might have these concepts, but only because of maybe some evolutionary process or whatever, but in the end, everything is meaningless. It's brute existence. Now, if you're not for, you know, the egghead definition, maybe Shakespeare will do. He, um, or here, Macbeth, rather, uh, pours out his disdain for existence. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. So like an actor hamming it up on stage, strutting and fretting as he goes, but with nothing to really say or nothing to contribute, such, at least Macbeth thinks, is our existence. Our existence makes quite a display. Sometimes, even in the great moments, it seems to have a rhyme and reason to it, but ultimately, it's mere sound and fury, adding up to nothing, in the end, signifying nothing. So you get the picture, right, of what nihilism is. All objective meaning, that which bolsters human existence, that which makes our lives bearable in the worst circumstances and worthwhile in the best circumstances, all that is purged from the world. And what we're left with is a cosmic accident. And so, in a more biblical register, we might say, along with the most pessimistic words you can find in all the scriptures, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, Ecclesiastes. That word, remember, vanity means nothingness or emptiness. You know, in the past, at least historically speaking, ancient people understood heaven and earth to be something of enchanted. The world was drenched in divine glory, filled to the brim with the divine presence. Men and angels proclaimed, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There was a weightiness about the cosmos then, but now, in the hands of theologians and philosophers and scientists, it has become vain. The world is an empty husk. It's devoid of beauty and truth and goodness, and it's merely the product of blind cause and effect, signifying nothing. Now, Frederick Nietzsche, uh, a philosopher who's often associated with this philosophy, he didn't mourn nihilism, um, but he celebrated it. He thought this was a good thing. He said that in response to the abyss of meaninglessness, the absolute purposelessness of existence, he says we can choose either of two paths. This was his way of construing things. He said either we can choose the path of the overman, is what he calls him, or the path of the last man. So you have the overman, the ubermensch, or the last man. Now the over overman, he's the man who responds with courage and strength, imposing his will upon an ultimately meaningless world. Right? There's a blank canvas before him. Nothing matters, nothing means anything. So he gets to really create himself and create the whole world. But to do this, right, you, you need to look blankly and courageously into the abyss and face it. This is the overman. He takes things into his own hands. So he exploits meaninglessness, and he enforces his own meaning upon it. Now, the last man, not the overman, he responds quite differently to the meaninglessness. Rather than looking into the abyss and mustering courage and strength, he retreats into his shell. There is nothing outside him to motivate him or else confront him, right? No objective truth to tell him right or wrong. No beauty to move him, to inspire him. No goodness to really make his life meaningful. So what does he do? Well, he elects to live for contentment and security. There's no meaning, so I might as well just be comfortable. I might as well just enjoy what I have. And it is really uncanny how well Nietzsche, the philosopher, got these things right. Those, those describe, those two overmen and the last man describe very much our society. So uh, a, a theologian, David Bentley Hart, he described the last man, the one who retreats into his shell, this way. He says, when an aspiring ape ceases to think of himself as a fallen angel, perhaps he will inevitably resign himself to being an ape and then become contented with his lot and ultimately even rejoice that the universe demands little more from him than an ape's contentment. So you get the picture. There's not much there for him, and so he thinks, well, all I might as well live for is contentment. And now, the overman, the one who takes charge, he makes his presence felt in our age. I think principally in pseudo-terrorist groups like Antifa and the Proud Boys. It's very much about like violence and about you know, reclaiming things. But we're concerned not with the overman, but with the last man, right? The one who goes into his shell. Now, it's true that the average Westerner, our neighbors, the people we interact with, um, do not confess an explicitly nihilistic ideology, right? They might not even know what it is. Um, and they probably don't understand themselves as hanging over this meaningless abyss. Now, there are people like that. 
Um, there are very much people who ha- have taken in this uh, philosophy, at least mentally, and, and they feel that way. Um, but the most don't. But, but what I'm saying here is that I don't think that really counts for much. Nihilism, and particularly this last man variety, characterizes the ethos of our time. It shapes our spiritual and moral imagination at the deepest of levels, whether one realizes that or not. It's kind of just the world we live in. It's the air we breathe. It's what everything is shaped around, whether we explicitly acknowledge it or not. And really, what is our society but the last man on a massive scale? Confronted by the nothingness, we've not responded with courage and nerve, but instead opted to shelter ourselves in comfort, in material prosperity and entertainment, right? And you think of the ever-growing number of these things, more and more content, more and more distraction. All this is designed to insulate us from the bleak emptiness of modern existence, where, where there just isn't truth or beauty or goodness, And so here, after a long introduction, is where the third commandment comes into view. The third commandment teaches us to hallow God's name. And remember what that means, to hallow something. We talked about a couple weeks ago that to fulfill the commandment means to acknowledge the objective, ultimate worth of God's name, of God himself, such that We ought to choose any alternative rather than to take it in vain, right? It's it's a great sin to take God's name in vain. So we ought to sacrifice our our, our comforts and our pleasures, um, even our lives, so that we might magnify and beautify the name of God, right? That's what it calls us to do. It presupposes this world where there is objective value, where things matter, And where there is a name of God that is worth everything. And so my question is this. How can we call, as the church, modern men and women to acknowledge the worth of God's name when literally everything in their existence is pushing them the opposite direction? Everything says nothing matters. How can we come in and say, the name of God, this is worth everything? In a world where all is vanity where any objective truth or beauty or goodness is a lie, where every man is the last man, comforting himself in more and more material pleasure, how can we turn the tide and call others, indeed ourselves, to hallow the name? And so, again, it seems that what the third commandment calls us to and the trajectory of our lives, even as Christians, right? We need to acknowledge that even as Christians, this is the world we live in. The commandment is going one way. The trajectory of our lives is going the opposite direction. And so it's my contention, and really what I'm trying to do in this sermon, is argue that it's useless to talk about the what of the commandments. You know, to talk about how we need to hallow God's name and so on and so forth, without arguing for the how of the commandment, without bringing in tow behind the commandment the whole world that it presupposes, because they're two different worlds. You can't just tell people, um, in this nihilistic world, with this worldview, 
hallow the name. It doesn't make sense. And, and, and people might aspire to that, but they're still living in a different world, and they'll get dragged back down. So I think it's almost tantamount to you know, demanding some, someone who is just learning to walk again for the first time. Right? They're, they're just learning how to use their legs all over again and then coming in and demanding that they start running, that they start keeping up with you and doing everything that a normal person does. Now, that's the goal. We want them to get there, but it takes time. We have to recover the very basics before we can move on to more advanced things. And I think, culturally speaking, that's where we're at. You know, and I felt that distance between myself and the command as I was studying a couple weeks ago, and which led to this. You know, we can't, again, simply attach the commandment and its unflinching commitment to objective truth, to objective beauty, and to objective goodness to our nihilistic understanding. What we have to do is upend the whole system. We have to reimagine heaven and earth. We have to start from the very, very basics. And so, with the rest of at least this middle part of the message, that's what I want to try and do is recover a little bit of the worldview that's presupposed in the third commandment, indeed, in the Ten Commandments. And so, this monumental task lies before us um, to upend this, the current system in the name of the third commandment. And so the question becomes, well, how do we do that? What do we need to do? And I think the answer is to recover a genuine Christian vision of reality. Again, to recover a genuine Christian vision of reality. To, 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 to paint a picture of the world in which the commandment, thou shalt not take the, the, the name of the Lord your God in vain, makes sense. So I want to spare you all the boring historical details, how our current situation came to be, but suffice it to say, the way has been cleared for over the better part of a millennium by an ever-widening distance between the natural and the supernatural, a, a, a growing distance between these two things. Again, the former vision of the supernatural realm permeating and feeling the natural realm has been abandoned in favor of a materialistic understanding. A materialistic understanding in which the two realms, the supernatural and the natural, are mutually exclusive. They don't have anything to do with one another. The, the natural can get on on its own. It doesn't need the supernatural. And the supernatural can get on its own. It doesn't need the natural. That, that's the world we inhabit. Or probably more accurately, that the supernatural doesn't exist at all. So either you have one of two views. Either they're totally mutually exclusive, they don't have anything to do with each other, uh, one can be imposed on the other, but that's it, or the supernatural doesn't exist at all. So really, I think the only way to keep this world from slipping into meaninglessness is to, to bring it and reattach it to the supernatural. And this takes a lot of work because we're on the far side of a historical process that's been going on for a very long time. So to reunite the two, we need to go back to the very beginning. Psalm chapter 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So the technical term, and you guys know it, that this couplet describes is creation ex nihilo, right? That's creation 
from nothing. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts spoken into existence from nothingness. So God did not fashion the universe from pre-existent, quasi-eternal matter. Right? That's like a lot of the ancient myths. There's matter alongside God or a God, and he imposes his will upon the matter. That's not the Christian view. Of course, we know this. It's basic. But rather, that he brought everything into being from the abyss of nothingness. Uh, St. Paul describes it this way. Romans chapter 4, verse 17. God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist, calls it into being from nothingness. So, it's fine to understand the Lord as a maker. The scriptures depict him as such. But he's more primarily a creator. So the maker metaphors of artisan or craftsman are permissible, but only as long as we accord them their proper place. Of course, God is cast as a maker in the creation account. He speaks things into existence, and then the rest of Genesis 1 He's making, he's fashioning things, uh, he's bringing order to an earth that is formless and void. But before we get that, it first casts him as a creator. The whole of reality, anything that is, comes from him, and no other source. Things visible or invisible, be it matter or space or time, all originate in him. Right? Creation ex nihilo. And not only did God bring heaven and earth into existence um, from nothingness, but every moment, even this very moment right now, he sustains the entire cosmos from slipping back into the nothingness from which it came. So when we say, you know, all things are from God, that God creates from nothingness, we typically understand that as a reference to the past. So in other words, all things are from God in the sense that at some undeterminate point in time, whether you believe it was 6,000 years ago or 14 billion years ago, God brought all things into existence. And that's true. It does refer to the past, but that's only one part of the picture. And I think to view creation as coming from God merely in that sense is to still think of him more as a a maker rather than a creator. So God's not the creator in the sense that he assembled the clock, um, wound it up, and then pushed it forward and let it go on its way, right? That's not what we mean when we say God's creator. That's a deistic understanding, right? That God makes a machine that can survive on its own, that can last on its own, and then he just kind of pushes it out into the universe, and it is the universe, pushes it out from him and lets it do its own thing. That's a deistic understanding, and it's the prelude to the nihilistic understanding, and subsequently it's unbiblical. Rather, it's more proper to say that creatures receive their being from God as freshly at this moment as creation did at the opening moment. Creation is not like a building and, a, uh, and the builder that constructs it, or a painting and the painter who paints it. In each of those analogies, there's too great an independence that's given to creation. Once the thing is constructed or assembled, it no longer depends upon its creator. A building, at least a well-built one, 
will outlast its architect. It no longer needs him to be what it is or, uh, or, 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 or to, to give it anything. It's there. It's done. The architect can die. He can change professions. The building remains. And, you know, so you get the, you get the picture. The two are fundamentally independent. And the same applies to a painting and its painter. Once it's been put on the canvas, its relationship to the creator is trapped in the past. It's only a relationship that can be discovered in the technique and skill, whatever. Now, creation understood merely as such. M- merely, right? The, the Bible uses all those metaphors. But if we use only those metaphors, um, we're running counter to Scripture. God's relationship to the creation is not merely that he granted it existence at some discrete point in time, but that he sustains it in every moment. It's not a machine that sustains and upholds itself according to its own internal systems. Rather, it is in every moment graciously and mercifully held into existence by the triune God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. In these last days, he, God, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, listen, who upholds all things by the word of his power, consistently held into being. Or more simply, as the Apostle Paul said to the Athenian philosophers, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being in him. So instead of the builder and the building metaphors, more appropriate ones for creation are something like the sun and its beams, or a singer and his song, or a thinker and her thoughts. Rather than depicting creation as merely a material artifact, something with its own independence, these metaphors maintain an inherent dependence of creation upon its source. Sunbeams and songs and thoughts are real things. And in some, some sense, they are independent of the one who produces them. But they're literally nothing without their source. Unless the sun keeps shining, sunbeams will pass into non-existence. Unless the singer holds his tune, the beautiful sound will cease. And unless the thinker maintains her thoughts they will slip into oblivion. So you get the difference there. Rather than creation as its, its own thing that is created and no longer needs God, it's something that's created, but at every moment always receives everything it is from God. That's, that's at least in part, there's more to say to it, a more scriptural relation from creation to creator. It doesn't have its own autonomy over against God, again, but it receives it from him. So, really, all of existence is an unceasing, ever-flowing, never-failing gift. And so, let me go back to the argument that I was making, and, and there it is. Once we reimagine creation's relationship to its creator, not as something independent and autonomous, it's got its own life, it doesn't need God, but at every moment, utterly dependent on him for what it is, and all of its existence, we've already struck a decisive blow against this meaningless, nihilistic worldview. You know, that artificial division between the natural and the supernatural, 
the understanding that they're two mutually distinct fears is undermined. And, and it really doesn't stand anymore. Now, let me add a little bit more here, hopefully, to make this easier to understand. And I think it really becomes clear when we just contrast God's existence with his, the existence of his creatures. So God's being, his existence and his life, is derived from nothing outside of him, right? He doesn't get what he is from any other source. He's self-sufficient. He's self-existent. He relies on nothing because he needs nothing. So it would be uh, more proper to say that God does not have being and existence and life, but quite simply that he is being and existence and life. There's nothing behind him or above him or before him to give him anything. All that he is, he derives from himself. This is what the scriptures mean when they say he is, I am. I am. Nothing but him. He gets all that he is from himself. Now, we can't say the same thing about us, his creatures. Rather, to be a creature, what defines us is our dependence. All things that exist receive that existence. It's not properly theirs, but a grant or a donation that's given to them by God. So whatever the creature is, be it a human or an angel or anything else, is what it is because God. Not just its life, but its attributes, its, its form, its everything comes from God in every moment. And this is put nowhere more perfectly than in the Apostle Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 4-7. I love this verse. I always come back to it. What do you have that you did not receive? What's yours that wasn't first given to you? Right? What attributes, what talents, what skills, what, what even about your body is yours that wasn't given to you, you didn't receive? And he says, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why are you boasting like this is your own thing? It's from God. Be humble is what he's saying. Now, in a close second to the Apostle Paul comes Anselm. He says in his book, On the Fall of the Devil, God, he alone, has of himself all that he has while other things have nothing of themselves. And other things, having nothing of themselves, have, only, have their only reality from him. We have nothing from ourselves. Our, our whole reality comes from God. So let's say that I possess some genuine goodness. Not that I actually do. This is a purely hypothetical experiment. Would I ever be able to claim that goodness as my own? No. If I have goodness... It's not mine as a possession, but by donation. That goodness doesn't originate in me, because I know that in me nothing good dwells, and that if there is any good gift, it comes from the Father above. It comes from a source outside of me. My goodness is not really my goodness, but God's goodness that he granted to me. What do you have that you did not receive? It's his goodness that I have a share in. I participate in God's goodness in a creaturely way. Now, the same is true for anything that is not sin in the world. Anything that is honorable or right or pure or lovely in all creation. If a creature embodies these virtues, be it animate or inanimate, it does so only by virtue of participation. Whatever a creature is, it derives those qualities from God. 
So God is truth and goodness and beauty. Creatures, created things, have truth and goodness and beauty by participation, by donation. So it, really, if I'm trying to sum up everything I'm trying to get across to you here, it's, you, could, you could say it in this sentence. The creature has what belongs to God. We have what belongs to God. Our existence, everything comes from God. And so again, there it is, right? The man-made division between the natural and the supernatural is just that, man-made. They're two distinct fears, but there really is no division because for, what, for the natural to be what it is, it needs the supernatural at every moment. You can't just connect the natural and send it on its way. It'll cease to be. You, you cut off a human, not, just a, not, just, not even a believer, a human from their source in God. They're nothing. They don't have their own life. They disappear. The creature has what belongs to God. So, again, this idea that you know, the natural realm um, stands on its own two feet is gone. Here it goes. It disappears. Because the temporal rests on eternal foundations. It doesn't have a foundation of its own. All things receive their being and everything they are from God. Now, here's where, at the end of all this, sorry I'm going on, we can bring this into, um, back to the third commandment. What in the world does any of this have to do with the third commandment? And I think everything. I, I think it unlocks it in such a way that it finally, at least in my mind, makes sense. Remember, we have to learn those basic motor functions before, you know, we can start to run. And this understanding of creation's relationship to God is just those basic motor functions, right? We're going to get to the commandment, but first we've got to bring that worldview that the commandment has along with it. And that's what this is. So, recovering this understanding, this relationship of God to the world, we can learn to hallow his name once again. So how so? How so? And I'll end with uh, two parts to this last one. The first reason that it can teach us to hallow once again is that it, this vision restores objective truth and beauty and goodness to the created order. Rather than humans imposing meaning upon the creation, it already resides there. It's inherent. It's not something that we fabricate but something that confronts us. Meaning is out there, and if we go out there, we'll run into it. It's real and substantial. And that realness and that substance, what we've been saying, doesn't come from creation, but it comes from God. It comes from a source beyond it. Listen to what the Lord's brother says in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Illumined by the scriptural vision, particularly this verse and others like it, man learns that there isn't one ounce of goodness in the creation. One ounce of goodness that doesn't come from the Father. Every perfect gift, he says. So it's not that creation has goodness as some abstract quality, something to call its own. James tells us something quite different. Again, every good thing is from above. It originates in a source outside itself, 
And it's bestowed upon creation as a gift, a perfect gift. And so this leads man, at least modern man, to a life-altering conclusion. Whatever goodness he encounters out there in creation is not a lie. And moreover, that goodness that he encounters is not really creation's goodness, but the Father's. The creation has no goodness to call it own, its, its own, only that which is donated from above. Therefore, any good thing, any good thing that you run into in your life, the love of your spouse, the thrill of adventure, the peace of a quiet morning, in some sense, is already and most primarily the Father's goodness. It comes from a source outside itself. So this last man, right? Remember the guy who goes retreats into his comfort and his, his, his vain life of entertainment and so on and so forth to, to shield himself from the meaningless. The last man, he doesn't have to be the last man anymore. He can put down his material and sensual distractions and re-enter a world that's charged with the grandeur of God. So this vision of things my goodness, is a cup of cold water to man's parched nihilistic soul. No longer are things profane and godless, cause and effect, random chance, but quite simply, every moment is holy and everything is holy. And so suddenly he learns to value something outside his own desires and comforts once again. There's something out there for him. He learns to hallow, even if it just be created things at the moment. To regard things with a value that's inherent to them and not imposed on them. And he learns this precisely because they have, their goodness comes from a transcendent source. So he overcomes his bleak materialism, not by turning deeper into the material, but by learning that the material rests on eternal and supernatural foundations. There's something more and greater there that gives it its significance. And so, listen, for the first time in his life, our fictional character here, he finds God in all things. Before the world was meaningless, there was nothing there. He was contemplating taking his life because it was all just a cruel joke. So, now, suddenly, God's everywhere. God's goodness follows him wherever he goes. It's present at a family gathering in the smiling faces and the bounty that's set on the table before him. It's present in something even like his job, in the dignity of the work that he does and the accomplishment of his labor. It's present in his marriage, the mutual happiness and joy and love that he shares with his spouse. Again, these are not realities he's learned that stand on their own, but they're finite manifestations of God's infinite goodness. Their God is suddenly in everything. The world is reinvested with glory and meaning. But as we've said, this vision runs both ways. Man learns that creation can be hallowed, at least in some respect, right? We're not talking about pantheism or anything like that. Because its goodness and beauty and truth are not really its own, but grants from the Father. So, so you see that, right? If everything comes from God and we experience him down here, it's really simple. We can trace that line right back up. If everything comes from God and the goodness we experience is really most truly God's goodness, then 
Well, we can follow the created finite goodness back up to its infinite source. So our fictional character, on one hand, can find God in all things and can find all things in God. Now, C.S. Lewis is just the master at this. He, he says in his, uh, at the end of his book, Four Loves, only by being in some respect like him, and, and here's everything we've been saying, only by being a manifestation of his beauty, loving kindness, wisdom, or goodness, has any earthly beloved excited our love. The only reason we find anything lovely is because it's a manifestation of God's more original loveliness. He says, it's not that we have loved them too much, but that we did not quite understand what we were loving. It's not that we shall be asked to turn from them so dearly familiar to a stranger. I mean, and, 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 and you, you don't get better than this. When we see the face of God, we shall know that we have always known it. So Lewis directs us to our earthly beloved, whatever that is. If it's your spouse or a particular place or something else, we all have them, that which excites our love. And Lewis says, it's not that we love our earthly beloved too much, but instead that when we're loving our earthly beloved, we don't quite understand what we're really loving. And so therein lies the question, what are we loving when we love our earthly beloved? When a husband delights in his wife's beauty, when a wife takes joy in her husband's gentleness and concern, when an outdoorsman finds contentment in a snowy mountainscape, what are these people loving? They might imagine themselves to be loving the earthly thing, but that's a mistake. I mean, they are, but what do creation and created things have that they did not receive? The husband's not delighting most primarily in his wife's beauty, but... God's beauty, that's hers by grant. The wife's not taking joy in her husband's gentleness and compassion, but his, that is God's by donation. And so it is for every earthly thing that's not sin. These are finite manifestations of God's infinite being. And so based on this, Lewis makes a profound and deeply Christian observation. In turning from our earthly beloved to God, we're not turning to a stranger someone who's utterly and completely unknown to us. Of course, he's transcendent. But it's not that we're going to get there and not realize who we've been loving. It is not that when we get to him, we're going to have to learn to love something else, a new beloved. But instead, he says, when we finally see the face of God, we will know that we've always known it. All that we loved in our earthly beloved was only the loveliness that God gave it. It was far more his the whole time than theirs. And so rather than turning from something familiar to a stranger, instead, when we come to God, it's going, we're going to rise from the shadow to the reality, from, from the little muddy rivulets to the gushing fountain, from the distant echo to the beautiful tune itself, right? We'll rise up from these things to their true source. And so thus, right, we come back to the third commandment. And this is where man learns to hallow again. He forgot how to hallow by separating the natural and the supernatural. And in divorcing them, he lost them both. The natural realm, because he severed it from the very thing that gave it its goodness, became empty. 
right? He emptied its contents, and what he did was embrace the container. He cut it off from its source, all the goodness that was from an outside source, and he just embraced the empty husk. But not only that, he lost the supernatural too. The natural that was man's only guide to the supernatural no longer bears any relationship to it. They're two separate things. They don't have any any coherence at all. And so as two autonomous spheres, they have nothing to do with one another. Heaven is, you know, in this scheme, is so unlike the world that you can't even imagine it. You can't even delight it. I remember talking to someone and saying, I know that when I get there, it's going to be nothing like this world, and I don't really like it, but I have to trust God. Well, that's not the vision that the scriptures give us. This world, it's finite, it's, it's, it's sin, and it's fractured, yet it's our guide in some sense, to what's to come. So he's told this guy to rejoice and hallow in the name, but he's got no point of reference, nothing with which to even begin to desire such things. So we'll end here. In bringing the two back together, we can discover just what we are commanded to hallow. The name that summons us to command or commands us to uh, give it ultimate worth. It's not a stranger, someone we want to hallow but can't, but rather someone in this sense that we've already been hallowing, that we've already been loving. He's just the reality behind it, the greater beauty behind it. And so what this does is it leads us beyond our earthly beloved to the one whose name is love. So experience, I don't know, whatever it is, the height of it for you. That's just but a very, very small glimpse of the true goodness that lies behind it. So anyway, the objective goodness and beauty and truth are restored to the earth. It's made livable again. We're brought back from the brink of destruction. And he realizes that what he finds in the world is but a glimpse of what awaits him. He learns that the things he really loves the most, or the thing he really loves the most, is God. Because God lies behind all those things. That's what he loves the most. He loved him the whole time, he just never realized it. And now at last, in realizing it, he can hallow the name. Let's pray.